On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, How will we hold on to ancient wisdom traditions while applying them creatively in today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with the journalist of words and ideas and history, Gal Beckerman. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello? Hello? Gal? Yes. Hi, it's Krista. Hi, Krista. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> good. <laughs> Happy 2022. Uh, to you as well. Uh, we hope. Um, we all hope. Yes. <laughs> we, yes. We yes. fervently pray that it will be better than the two years I know, before. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I was trying to remember when we had been first in touch. You know, I, th- I think it's now like over 15 years ago when I was at CJR. Um, yeah. I was trying yeah. to remember if we'd met anywhere in between. I mean, because, you know, you, we do have intersecting points, right? Like you've come up, sure. we, I know we have some people in common, mm-hmm. you've come up in conversations, and uh, I, I, it kind of strikes me as strange that we've never been in the same room, but Yeah, I, sure. I think we might, we may not have, yeah. but, I, but, yeah. it's, but, it, it's, but it is funny, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm glad that, you know, it's funny how these things like bear fruit so many years later, yes. you know, like a conversation that starts 15 years ago. Yes, and, yeah. yeah. No, and I... Uh, yeah, I've always followed you, and um, mm-hmm. when this came in, I was just so excited. And yeah, mm-hmm. and it did feel like, oh yeah, okay, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah, oh good, oh good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the show, so oh. I, I was equally excited to, to hear from you. Oh, thank you. Um, and you know, so what's your pub date? February. It's of uh, February fifteenth. Okay. Yeah. So. And, you know, I, we don't technically do book interviews, so I'm really happy to talk to you here in, yeah. uh, in the quiet before of publication. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess, Zach, are we good? Okay. Um, all right. So, um, I mean, do you have any questions for me before we start? No, only, I mean, we're, this is edited, right? So if there's oh, yeah. some yeah. avenues that I go down that I realize I want to start, I mean, I don't imagine doing that, but. You yeah, know, no, um, it's yeah. a, it's a real, just say it's a real conversation. No, and, I love that. Yeah. Love that. And, and so. And that's how, and that's how the show feels. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I will, you know, I may even encourage you to go down because we have, we, because we have the space to do that. We do put the unedited out. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we have to produce it for the. Right. I don't know right. what fifty-four right. minute radio hour, whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, great. Well, so, so you know, I'm always interested in um, the there's a there's a, if there's a religious background to someone's life, mm-hmm. and and also, and it feels to me that in your life these things are intertwined. Um, you know. Where kind of the inquiries and passions that you hold that you follow were planted in your early life, in your childhood, and you know I see you I see you as much a historian as a historian, as a journalist, and um, you know I know for example that you are a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, so yeah. um, I don't know if that is a place you would start or or what else occurs to you when you think about this the early seeds of what you what you're you know what you're working on now. 
Yeah, that's it's fascinating to think about. You know, one finds interests and curiosities, and sometimes it's difficult to sort of to, to go deep enough beneath the surface to understand exactly where they where they're emerging from. But yeah. I've always really been interested in uh, the way that ideas sort of emerge and take over reality, mm-hmm. um, and I suppose. I suppose there is a link. Maybe you're pointing me to one um, to to try to understand um, something about my my own grandparents' experience, which was extremely formative for me growing up, hearing those stories and knowing the trauma that they had that they had been through. They all, all four of my grandparents lost most of their family during the war mm. um, in a world that had sort of completely flipped on them um, yeah. in their lifetime. So. Um, there, there has always been a kind of interest in understanding um, how how that could be, how how society changes in dramatic ways. Hmm. Um, even my first book, to some extent, was a sort of uh, a way of understanding a social movement at a kind of a, a kind of a, um, really delving into into the particulars of of. Uh, of how it develops, um, how you take something that is in the context um, of the Soviet Union and Soviet dissidents, and that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, my first book was about you know Jews in the Soviet Union looking yeah. to get out, and the movement that developed, which was really just a, a few people in the early '60s, and then became a movement that led to about a million and a half people finally being allowed to immigrate. Yeah. Um, how does that? How does it start from nothing and become a, a part of the fabric of of our reality? Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me, too. Now, when were you born? What year were you born? 1976. Okay. So you also had a Soviet twin. I guess that was that a project. <laughs> and um, Was that like around your bar mitzvah? And yeah, you were yeah, twinned was, with a Soviet it, youth who wouldn't be able to have a bar mitzvah? Exactly. It was... Uh-huh. Um, it was it was a, a program, a quite an effective one, I think, you know, now that I've sort of looked at social movements more broadly mm-hmm. and thought about the way you get people identified with a cause. Uh, it was pretty genius. Um, what, it, what they did was they, they paired you, you know, a young 13 year old boy or girl with mm-hmm. a, um, a Soviet uh, teenager who was not allowed to have those rites of passage because yeah. these things were fairly, um, uh, Jews were fairly discriminated against in the Soviet Union synagogue. There were no synagogues, really. There was no religious rites um, that were, were allowed kind of at this level. And so so you would, at every stage in the in the ceremony, you would bring them up and, oh. uh, and <laughs> mention them. Of, and, you sort of integrated them into your bar mitzvah. Exactly, exactly. Wow. And they, they gave you a little bit of information about uh-huh. them. And, um, you know, I, I think for me, having grown up with my grandparents' stories of, of the war, um, and having a kind of a naive uh, feeling that, you know, once the war was over, then, you know, the world kind of came back to, <laughs> to normal and, you know, not understanding. It was almost shocking to think that there could be a boy living in my moment. It was 1989, you know, living in that period of time that was suffering in some way for his religious identity. Um, so it, it was the kind of uh, um, awareness that the movement as a movement sort of wanted to implant in, uh, uh-huh. in in our minds. But what's so also interesting about that timing is that that, that entire world was about to, you know, it, 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 you you also were at that at that juncture where where the, where the world turned itself inside out. I mean, where, right where there's no totally. more no more Soviet Union, and you know, I don't know if you, I, I lived in divided Berlin in the 1980s, and mm-hmm. you know, 
the things I talk about when I talk to my children about them, they just it feels like I'm telling fantasy or science fiction stories or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, I do feel like um, I have read you and followed your work for a long time, and you know, Columbia Journalism Review, Forward, New York Times Magazine, um, this book. Um, uh, sorry, what what is the title? When they come, when they when they come for us, we'll be gone. When they yeah. come for us, we'll be gone, and and it does feel to me like the subject of this new work you've written, um, um, that there's a, that there is kind of a sustained focus of your attention across across much of the writing you've done, and you know I have to say when I first received the book, just the title, the quiet before. Um, is so evocative and so intriguing. And I wonder if, just as we start, you would kind of um, just say what that phrase holds for you. How would you kind of get us into that? Yeah. Well, you know, I, the whole time that I've been writing uh, these bo- this book, uh, it's been a moment of, uh, you know, much... There have been a lot of protests um, yeah. and a lot of social movements that have emerged and grabbed our awareness and our consciousness in fairly dramatic ways. Um, but I, you know, maybe because of what we just spoke about, I was always sort of wondering, you know, what what happens before? What happens before the people mm. get people get to the streets? Um, and and then the the next part of that was, you know, is something happening before? You know, mm-hmm. is there a conversation? Is there a place for deliberation and for argument and for imagining and for um, for, for 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 coherence? Um, what happens in that quiet before? You know, because the noise, you know, and this is one of the things that I I definitely want to make clear about my book: the noise has its role. Um, it absolutely has yeah. its role. Yeah. You, you know, you don't grab attention without it, but there has to be a, this moment of 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 calm and well. I guess it can sometimes be of calm. It can it can also be of debate and and yelling and screaming. But mm-hmm. it has to be um, has to be not in uh, has to be among people. Yeah. It has to be among among people who are um, who are planning. I, I kind of in my mind, I I imagine a group of people sort of huddling together, um, and that notion of kind of the the the, the quiet corner where a group of people mm-hmm. is um, you know sort of plotting something, and the kind of energy that that can generate, yeah. uh, the, the 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 feeling of you know a word I use in the book, and I don't love it because I feel like you know, Silicon Valley is going to co-opted it, but, but, uh, but is incubation. Yeah. Um, and incubation is this concept of, you know, you need the heat, you need the like closeness, you need the intimacy in order to, you know, especially when you have an idea that is going to undermine, um, a, a status quo, one that people may even have long taken for granted for, you know, dozens or hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And you know, I want to say to you, I, I know that a lot of what you have, you you've kind of gone into what you might call case studies, um, different events, movements, um, kind of the kind of pre movements, um, the origins of phenomena that we see 
much later, um, full-blown, right. but we don't remember the origins. Um, right. And I know that your focus is really on kind of progressive change and revolutionary change, but what I think is valuable about this, too, is, you know, it's also just, it's about how change happens, right? right. right. Uh, it's about how transformative change happens, um, good, bad, or ugly, right? So, I mean, I mean, what you just said about mm-hmm. the quiet before was also there in terms of, you know, what became oh, yeah. the Holocaust and oh, yeah. and completely took your your ancestors, you know, by surprise. Yeah. And yet the, there was this ferment. And here we are at a moment in time in history um, when, you know, I, I keep saying in these last years we have a world to remake, right? Like mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. The, the forms that we inherited out of the 20th century and, and this has been accelerated and complicated by 2020, 2021, uh, you know, we, we, we are reinventing our, our structures, our organizations, our societies mm-hmm. in good ways mm-hmm. and bad. So I think mm-hmm. that this intelligence, um, this kind of looking back at the long arc um, is so valuable. Um, yeah. And, you know, it feels, mm-hmm. it feels, it feels necessary to me mm-hmm. and, and, and I sort of, you know, I feel frustrated at times by the amnesia that we tend to have societally yeah. about what came before. Uh, you know, I there is a double meaning maybe to the book. You know, the quiet before is also maybe the quiet before before the internet. Um, right. But there 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 is there is this sense in which you know we 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 believe that you know people. It's impossible to imagine how people sort of came together. Uh, you know, on mass, or 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 that an idea went viral. You know, right. um, that <laughs> without, how, how without social media, exactly, exactly. And <laughs> right. so, so one of the projects of this book was to say, like, you know, what would it be if we told these stories next to each other? You know, if we mm-hmm. if we had a book that, mm-hmm. you know, started with you know, letters before the scientific revolution and ended with Twitter and Black Lives Matter, you know, mm-hmm. and, and try to understand what were the threads um, that yeah. connected them in terms of, you know, people need a means to communicate amongst themselves. And, you know, when you're not in a room around a table, which is one option, but mm-hmm. it's not always an option that's available when you want to sort of build something at scale. Like you need, you need to have ways that you talk to each other. And my, and and my interest is in in the medium and the ways in which you know we need to understand it, them as as tools you know and i think what you said was very correct like these are tools that could be used for terrible ends you know yeah. for horrible yeah. ends well, but it's how, it's how transformation happens and that can yeah. take many yeah. forms and exactly. have a lot exactly. of different kinds of character i mean so okay so you you often speak about you know what you what you saw consistently when you look back at mm-hmm. um are you, you talk about it in terms of three acts that seem to mm-hmm. be nece- necessary so why don't you just lay that out and then i really do want to kind of i want to i kind of want to dive into some of these sure. some of these sure. stories some of these histories that we don't know sure well the three the three acts that comes from uh from Saul Alinsky who was the, yeah, right. the, the you know the famous sort of organizer yeah. um who who uh, whose book Rules for Radicals was extremely influ- influential for a lot of activists um and he was looking at at activism kind of in the sick in the 60s um he was looking at activism in the 60s and and feeling that uh most of the protests that he saw in the streets uh the massive protests had sort of skipped what he called like he said it's like a, you have to think of 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 movements as 
uh, as having the three act structure of a play. You know, in the first act you meet the characters, uh, in the second act they sort of are brought into conflict with each other. In the third act there's this resolution, um, and uh, and he said people were jumping to the resolution to the mm-hmm. to the act three, and because of that he was seeing movements that sort of burned very brightly and then just kind of flamed out. And right. and I, I, I feel like I've been watching similar processes yeah. unfold over the last few years. Yeah, and you um you said this a minute ago. I, I think when you talk about it through throughout the work, you talk about what you know, what is needed for this kind of sustained, sustainable right. Growth and development. Um, I just some of the notes I made. A small group of committed people, as you said, there needs to be a certain amount of incubation, heat, closeness, closeness, intimacy, and someplace you said there were there were a certain set of qualities that yes. incuba- incubation gave these movements. Right. Really interesting list: patience, coherence, imagination, debate, focus, and control. And as you said, a medium. Um, that provides incubation, but can also give a movement these necessary ingredients for building to more lasting change. And one of the interesting things now is that the only medium, the medium that fills and actually narrows our imaginations, right, is right. the media. It is is digital. Right, right. Yeah. And I and I worry. I mean, those those qualities that I sort of identified came out of the historical research of the book, sort of trying to understand, you know, what did letters provide or petitions uh-huh. or samizdat or some of these, you know, other, you know, forms of communication that we can get into. But, you know, they, they, they provided these groups of people, um, those qualities that I think are necessary to sort of slowly developing uh, a, a, a radical idea, a new idea, and also felt so um, different from the qualities that that uh, that social media provides to us today which is uh, which is speed which is um, volume um, mm-hmm. which is the ability to sort of grab attention um, and th- again those are not those qualities have their role mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in a in you know especially when you're trying to reach a wide group of people or get a lot of people to the same physical location at the same moment um, so that cannot be denied but the, the the problem is when uh, and and the one that I hope the history sort of informs our thinking of is is when the when that is the only tool that that you use when that's the only quality that you have and the way that it can sort of contort the 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 impulses of the movements themselves mm-hmm. um, make them think that this is the only way to achieve something or the only way that they should kind of comport themselves yeah. So let's just kind of walk through sure. some of the stories you tell, dip in. Um, you know, you begin in France in 1635 <laughs> with the Republic of Letters, um, right. a time in which the mechanics of everything was being examined. Um, mm-hmm. Why did you start there? Well, I just, I really became fascinated with, uh, with, with the particular story that I tell, yeah. but it, it gave me, which I can describe a little yeah, bit, but yeah, it yeah. gave, yeah. Um, well, the story I tell is, is, is of a man named, uh, Peresque, uh, who was an aristocrat from Aix-en-Provence, uh, who was part of this Republic of Letters and the Republic of Letters for people not familiar with it was this, um, 
fairly large group. I think there were, you know, maybe like 200 to 300 people uh, involved in this at any given moment. It lasted for, you know, for actually hundreds of years, um, but but had its sort of real flourishing uh, in the 17th and into the 18th century. Um, and it was a way for for people who were, they called themselves natural philosophers then, uh, but, but all kinds of you know, aristocrats and missionaries and people who had kind of an intellectual bent but were not part of universities and were doing uh, all kinds of you know, proto-scientific investigations on their yeah. own. They were just, you know, the, 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 uh, the doctrines of the church were sort of beginning to break down and it was an opportunity to look at the natural world and use the powers of observation to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time that Piresque was doing this work, it was still fairly dangerous work. It was, you know, he, one of his mentors at some point and the man that he, one of the men he most emulated was, was Galileo, mm-hmm. who at the time was being persecuted and eventually put in house arrest by the church um, for writing books, uh, mm-hmm. writing one book in particular <laughs> yeah. that, that, uh, that undermined the entire, you know, earth-centered view of the universe that the church had. Um, Piresque wasn't a character who wanted to sort of blow a trumpet and draw that much attention to himself. He wanted to carry out his scientific investigations in a quieter way. And so Mm -hmm. he used the medium of letters. Letters were incredibly effective because they kind of flew in. Not only did they fly under the radar, but they were a way to um, to have a sort of an ongoing conversation. Um, you know, that chapter I call patience because because there there is a quality in which, you know, you get out of out of writing letters back and forth where it duplicates a conversation, it's thoughts traveling through space and you can kind of slowly influence people to a way of thinking or share ideas um, in a way that, you know, a book is one person's kind of uh, announcement to the world. Um, But, but this is, this is a conversation and he wanted the conversation. And anyways, the chapter (laughs) uh, to, to get to the point of it was, um, was Piresque had this idea that he wanted to um, understand like how, how he wanted to figure out the longitude of, of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the maps, it seemed at the time, were completely off. They were from the time of Ptolemy. I mean, they were, you know, mm-hmm. thousands of years, a thousand years yeah. old. Um, and But in order to do this, to accurately figure out longitude, what you needed was a lot of people in... Um, a few different, different geographic locations. Different places, right? Yeah. Right? Different yeah. places around the yeah. kind of known world, all observing one uh, astrological event uh, at the same time and then marking the difference in time they saw it. And then that difference would equal longitude. Mm. Um, so this sounds simple enough to us today, but it's obviously not, you know, in the, in yeah. the 1630s. Yeah. Um, there's the logistical problem, but there's also the fact that you need people who are able to take what's essentially a risk involved in carrying out a scientific, uh, a, sci- a scientific project like mm-hmm. this. So Puresque recruited all kinds of, you know, far-flung missionaries and merchants um, who were not, you know, natural philosophers, were mm-hmm. not in this Republic of Letters. And it was fascinating to read his letters as he's essentially training them into thinking like, um, you know, rational observers. Um, right. He's moving them from the world of doctrine and blind belief uh, to one in which there is real value in, in being able to measure and to, and to investigate mm-hmm. with your own eyes what you see around you. And so 
reading those letters leading up to, he eventually, he identified an eclipse that was happening. Um, right, right. And, and so he had them all observe the eclipse on the same night, but it was like a, you know, a year and a half of kind of recruiting and building up and teaching them how to use the like recruit equipment that he was sending them to observe with. And, um, and he ended up, finding that the Mediterranean was in fact about 500 miles shorter than everyone right. thought it was. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, 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 you speak about him as a connector of Europe's great minds and yeah. of the quiet revolution that was offered by the post, but also yeah. I was really taken by these words of his, mm-hmm. um, the brevity of human life does not allow that one person alone is sufficient it is necessary to adopt the observations of a good number of others from the past centuries and future ones to clarify that which fits better. On yeah. the one hand, I think, you know, right, when you describe what had to be done to make certain kinds of observations that we could now do with very sophisticated instruments, mm-hmm. um, and yet what he says here remains true, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And in fact, what they did in that incredible, incredibly analog way was one of the foundations on which we know how to do what we know how to do now. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, and I, I love, I love that, you know, I love that sentence, right? Because actually that's sort of science as well, isn't yes, it? Like it's we, science. you know, you, yeah. you take, you take what people have observed in the past and then you, you redo experiments and you yeah. tweak them because they're not accurate enough. And, yeah. and he sort of understood that. And what was fascinating was how he connected that to, to the letters, you know, the letters, of course, you know, weren't a conversation with people in the past or people in the future, but they were, they were part of this sort of, it was the ongoingness and mm-hmm. the, and the, and the, I guess the appreciation for the incremental, you yeah. know, which is something yeah. also that we've sort of lost <laughs> today, yeah. but the sense that like knowledge yeah. happens in, you know, fits and starts and you, you, you know, people piece it together from different, you know, from their own particular angles that they're coming from. And, and that, you know, that's how they worked in the Republic of Letters. That's, that's how they, they did their work. They would send each other data. They'd find, find sometimes artifacts, you know, uh, strange bones they'd discovered or fossils and, um, and sort of check each other. And, and, you know, this was sort of in the age before institute, this was institutionalized. They were almost like a, like a, you know, like a like a science like the board of a scientific journal or something. Well, and you know what else? It's like citizen science, which we are now reinventing, right? Right. right. This is right. now how this is actually now how a lot of a lot of new learning is happening. Um, right. I also, you know, then you also go to Manchester in 1839, mm-hmm. and the subject is universal suffrage, which just feels. Uh, so obvious, right, that mm-hmm. it would come, <laughs> right? Right. right? right. But this story is incredible. Of in 1839, 1.2 million signatures collected on pages that were pasted together that would be three miles long. Yeah, yeah. And w- what struck me so much about that story that this, you know, and and largely the the petition and the the petition campaign was the brainchild of the the man who's sort of the center of that chapter, uh, Fergus O'Connor, mm-hmm. um, who was a kind of a progressive politician at the time. Um, but the idea was that the the petition provided uh, coherence. You know, you had you had a, a working class then. That had already there already been a reform bill in Parliament that was trying to sort of that there was a notion that there, this was a problem that you know there was a lot of disenfranchisement you know most of the 
I mean, the entire working class. So huge portions of the population did not have the right to vote. Mm. Um, and we're only talking about men here, even we haven't even gotten to women. Um, right, right, and, right. And, right. <laughs> um, but he, he understood that this anger was real and it was burning and that if it was not given a focus, um, that there would be violence and revolt and that it would be put down uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, extraordinary, um, you know, with, with violence of its own from the yeah. state. Um, and so his solution was the petition, which seems sort of funny to us now because it's become such a part of our daily life, but it's, or, you know, our, 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 like how, how a movement or a cause sort of grows. But at the time it was a fairly innovative thing yeah. to use it at this scale. And his message, he traveled all over England. His message was Pour your passion into the petition, into getting people to sign it, into having conversations around it. You know, this yeah. is also a moment, this interesting juncture between kind of oral culture and literate culture where people are, you know, you somebody knocks on your door and starts to have a conversation with you about why you don't have the right to vote. Yeah. And, you know, and, and but it ends in, a, in an act of writing, you know, of, of writing your name, of joining mm. uh, this community of people um, and your identity changes. You become a part of the working class. I mean, just that he had to build that constituency before he could make any attempt at, at power Hmm. uh, because they didn't have any, I mean, it was an invention in a way of, there was no, no levers. There was nothing that they could, that they could do this, that the the notion of petitioning parliament was this sort of ancient um, tradition in England that, you know, had never quite been used by this, but it was like, it was like a loophole, you know, it was like the one thing that right. they could do. Um, so, so he really took full advantage of it. But what I, okay, but what's so interesting here for me in terms of, in terms of, you know, what is the truth? What is the, what, what is the piece of this puzzle that we forget, right? right. That you talked about, because as you say, like, and also now a petition might turn up in my inbox and I, I barely have to lift a finger. To, <laughs> I mean, I don't even have to lift a finger to sign it, right? right? But what you describe is what happened is you said it was the actual physical work of gathering the signatures. Yes. And a yes. whole culture spun out from this central intimate act carried out one person at a time. And also, I mean, also we need to say, and this is true of absolutely every t- story you tell, these are not unbroken arcs of beauty and triumph, right? right. So right. Right. so even with 1.2 million signatures on a piece of paper three miles long, it was ridiculed. And, yep. and there were, it was mostly, it was, it's mostly a history of failure for a long time. Um, and then, but, but what you also, the story you also tell that feels to me as if, because I'm always thinking, what do we have to learn here as we, as we have to remake a world you know right. you said that it was as you said it wasn't just signing the page it was having the conversations and you said there was and over time that there were these small local associations that coalesced that became self-sustaining and they were right. they were temperance societies and they were collected collective newspaper reading clubs and lectures mm-hmm. and garden parties and mm-hmm. singing and picnics yes. and it was that human that 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 human force um, behind the signatures that that right. moved, that right. shifted things. Right. The petition became the sort of focal point around which a whole social world developed. Um, and they understood it as having that function for them, which is, mm-hmm. which is 
Wonderful. And I, I think, you know, you, you made a really good point about the work involved in, in making it yeah. happen, you know, because, yeah. you know, we have this critique today of the kind of slacktivism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and partly it's that, you know, there is something about doing that work that, you know, when it's harder, you know, when mm-hmm. it's not a, a click, but you have to actually, you know, uh, go door to door and put in the time that, that has these residual effects for a movement. It, it, it bonds people. It makes you feel more identified. It, it gives you a sense of, of, of connection and purpose. That's um, because you've put in the, the sweat, you know, you've put in the, 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 the time yeah. um, so that, it, it had its own it had its own role to play actually the the hardship of the it. hardship yeah yeah I mean yeah I, I feel like we could spend a couple of hours just going through every chapter and I'll just <laughs> like in, and then we go to Florence in 1913 with the Florentine Futures right. I have to tell you just like my favorite line in that is Mina Loy who's one of your characters and she says personally I am getting very young <laughs> 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 which yeah, which that. is actually something I'm kind of feeling like this right now um, yeah. in our tortured world. Um, uh, and I think that also is, you know, somehow part of the story of um, not just um, being part of something that changes the world, but how how this kind of depth of engagement, cha- right. you know, not just changes, but energizes, enlivens. Right, the people right. who do it, even when they are facing one setback after the other, sometimes very grave and dangerous setbacks. Right, right, right. right. I, I think that's true. It, it sort of it, it bonds them. You know, it, it's it's um, you know one of the one of the the ways I got into this subject into this book is through the story of Samizdat, which we, we haven't yes, gotten to yet. In but, the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, in the Soviet yeah. Union. So the so Samizdat was this um, underground form of writing, uh, illegal writing that people would create on typewriters. Mm-hmm. They would put, you know, a few very thin kind of onion skin yeah. uh, pieces of paper uh, and type out, um, you know, all, all kinds of things that would not be allowed officially. Uh, but the, what I looked at specifically was this journal, this underground journal that called The Chronicle. It started in 1968. And it its function, its its purpose was to keep track of all the ways that the dissident community itself, and then Soviet citizens in general, were being um, were being you know oppressed by the state, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and and having their civil liberties and their and their human rights curtailed. So it was just became like this catalog uh, of the of 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 what was happening to people, um, and it struck me how you know, dangerous this was, um, to do this, but also how, how important it was to create almost this shadow civil society. You know, they were carrying out an act, you know, witnessing and, 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 you know, vocalizing and putting down on paper violations they were seeing that mattered to them, even if they had no valence within Soviet society, Mm -hmm. you know, even the fact that like a book was censored or somebody was fired from their job for teaching a censored book, you know, that would hold no ground in official law. To them, it mattered because they had a sense of what civil society should be. And, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and it, it held that idea together. It held it together over, you know, decades, uh, living under an authoritarian regime and multiple decades. Yeah. yeah. And one of the, one of the fascinating things with the Chronicle as a, you know, as a, as a journal is that they, it's, they started to, as time went on and people knew about it and knew the editors were living in Moscow in the capital, they would 
write on small pieces of paper uh, things that they were seeing that were, in, in fact, by human rights. You know, if, if you looked at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, where, which the Soviet Union was a signatory to, they were violations. And so they would write these down, uh, which was a brave act in itself. And then they would pass it on to the person who had given them sort of the latest issue of the Chronicle that they had seen. Right. And then that person would pass it on to the person they had gotten the issue from. And it was this chain that went all the way back to Moscow and the editor. And then that little piece of paper, whatever information was on it, would then go in the next issue. So it, mm. it became this network, uh, uh, you know, and kind of an analog network of people passing hand to hand what they were seeing, experiencing as Soviet citizens and would have no place anywhere else. Um, and through that, through those actions, they actually created much more transparency that, you know, would have ever existed in Soviet society. So for example, you know, people would go into closed, uh, or they'd get, if they get access to kind of closed courtroom hearings, they would then go outside and kind of write down everything that they had heard, you know, because it often gave the defendants no rights at all um, and hardly a lawyer. And then they would pass that on to the Chronicle and it would appear in the next issue. And, you know, this was just a way for people who believed in a certain set of values that weren't being respected at the time in their society to maintain uh, their own community of people that lived by those values, the Mm -hmm. actual writing, the actual production of this journal and the 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 the, the 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 contribution to it by just you know regular Soviet citizens who wrote it down on a little piece of paper you know and passed it along. As soon as they did that, they became part of that sort of you know shadow civil society. So mm-hmm. so it, it was incredibly important for them. And it had it had it had true effect, right? And part I mean yeah. part of what you're part of what you are teasing out of these different stories, these different chapters. Um, of the human enterprise over the last few hundred years is um, is that there are pieces of methodology that kind of recur. Um, yeah. And I mean, maybe one more place to go before we mm-hmm. focus in some more is Ghana, yeah, um, Accra, chapter, West Africa, really like 1935. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I actually, I, you know, they're all my favorites, but, but, yeah. but I really love this story because yeah. it, it did feel like one that I had sort of discovered. Mm. Um, and it's it's the story of the 1930s in Ghana. It's still under British rule, um, but it's a moment in time where there is increasingly this very small elite of, of um, at the time it was called the Gold Coast, it wasn't called Ghana right, yet, right. Um, of Africans who are going to England and getting educated, um, some at a very high level, and coming back and finding no opportunities for themselves and feeling increasingly frustrated by their state as colonial subjects. Um, and so one of the things that happens in the 30s is these sort of um, African-owned newspapers. And they're very small newspapers. They're not newspapers the way we think of newspapers in the West as, you know, having a professional staff of reporters and editors. Mm. Business um, model. Exactly. <laughs> Business model, exactly. They yeah. didn't really have, they, they, the thing, the only thing they had going for them was that uh, they acted as almost like bulletin boards, you know, where yeah. they, they're, they're the most robust. And I've, I've spent time with these newspapers. They're kind of amazing to, to leaf through. Um, but they were almost entirely made up of uh, pseudonymous and anonymous uh, contributions from local people. Yeah. Um, 
ar- arguing and um, sort of proposing, and th- it was an op-ed page essentially, um, mm-hmm. an op-ed page, and you know, with like really funny pseudonyms, like you know, one guy calling himself Lobster, and another is like <laughs> a you know a citizen, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and they they're really doing this incredible thing on, on these pages, which is they are letting themselves feel angry about British rule. Uh, they are working out some of the details of what it would mean to be, to have independence uh, along the lines of, to have a national identity, a national identity along the lines of European national identity, which for them also meant sort of erasing or, or, or diminishing some of the connections to tribe. I mean, that was a in, in, mm-hmm. in tribal ways. I mean, one of the big arguments that I saw sort of recurring in these pages is, so, you know, when this happens one day, you know, are we going to allow polygamy or are we going to be, you know, monogamous mm-hmm. as a culture? You know, when we, when we gain independence, when one day we're freed from the British yoke, uh, how, what is this, what is it going to look like? Is our allegiance going to be to being Fanta or, you know, one of the other tribes, or is it going to be to being, um, you know, this new African national identity? Mm. And so I focused on probably the most, um, kind of politically aware and and provocative of these journals, uh, of these newspapers, um, which was started by actually a Nigerian uh, man named uh, Namidia Zikawe, uh, who, would, who would then go on eventually to become the first president of Nigeria years yeah. later. Um, but at the time, he was a very young man who had studied in America for many years um, and actually became friends with like Langston Hughes and, mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, and, he then came back to Africa because he wanted to, you know, change the continent uh, and change and change African mentality. Is how he saw it. He wanted he wanted to to, to free his people, um, and the way he didn't have a lot of avenues to do this and didn't have a, didn't have a medium. Um, but newspapers and this particular newspaper that he started actually um, became this incredibly explosive. Uh, form of communication for this small community of people who were literate. Uh, You know, there was a combination of these elites who had gone to England, but Uh that's a very small group of people. But increasingly there were um, what would become Ghanaians, people living in the Gold Coast in Accra, who had gone to mission school, schools run by missions. And and there was sort of a public school program. So you had more and more people who were uh, literate in English and able to contribute and um, this, of course, led to lots of debates because people were coming from different perspectives, but it all was mm-hmm. sort of this very generative um, space mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that in my telling in this chapter sort of set the stage for, um, for independence. And all of these stories over time, right? Like what was that over decades, right? Right. It's, right. Uh, I mean, all of these stories... Um, I don't know. What are I mean? I'm just trying to think about some of the threads, some of the some of the truths they tell about how reality works. I mean, one thing is, um, these are mostly stories, kind of uh, um, animated by people whose names we don't remember. Right? It's mm-hmm. not. It's mm-hmm. not the the person who became famous at the apex or when things kind of when it was not the quiet before, but the noisy. Right. <laughs> Right. right, right. The noisy right. emergence right. into a kind of mainstream civilizational attention, right. and right. years and years and years passing. Right, but where something is happening, 
Um, yes, and and I think the thing that's happening and the thread mm-hmm. between all of these and I don't mm-hmm. I mean, it's the thing that fascinates me most. Um, is they're talking? It's mm-hmm. conversation, mm-hmm. and you know, um, I mentioned in the book Jürgen Habermas, the German philosopher yeah. who sort of made a real. Um, sort of fetish of, of the, the role of conversation and of talking and of deliberation in sort of the building of, you know, democratic society of, of Western civilization. And, and I, I, that's what I see in those moments in the quiet mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. I see people having conversation and it's through the friction of mm-hmm. minds interacting mm-hmm. through speech, through talking, through sharing ideas that, mm-hmm. that is the only way that a newness sort of enters the world. Mm. Um, and, and then it, and then it does take time and patience. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but I, you know, it's, it's those individual, it's both the individual acts of conversation and the, and the, and, and the kind of the groups coming together to share ideas and shift minds um, that, that feel to me sort of consistently the thing that we need and, and, and the, the need to create a space for that, you know? And, um, so it, it feels funny in a moment where there's so much noise and talk and <laughs> chatter, you know, around us to, to be arguing for, for more talking and conversation. But in some ways for me, it's the, like, there's a distinction between what does it mean to be social? Right. And there is, there is a concept of being social where, you know, you go to a, a cocktail party and, you know, every, it's really loud and somebody makes a joke and everyone kind of turns in that direction. And then you have like a snippet of conversation with somebody else, but you can hardly hear it. Uh, and then, and then there's like, you know, you, you get pulled into something else and pulled out of that. And then at the end of the day, you, you come home from that party and you're taking off your shoes and you think like, I didn't actually talk to anybody. Right. Like <laughs> right. that was, yeah. Like what, did, what, what was that? And you know, I didn't connect with anybody. That's, that's right. And that's the, so like. to me, yeah. that's the social yeah. of social media. Yeah. But, but that isn't the only model of what mm-hmm. it means to be social. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a phrase you have in there somewhere, slow communal discovery. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you know, I don't know. I guess I thought we might talk about this near the end, but I'll just, you know, say it now. I mean, I also do feel that there are these parallel narratives right now and, you know, this language of emergent strategy and um there there I, I do this is a time of slow communal discovery mm-hmm. um below the radar um but just like in the stories you tell, I mean, it is so far below the radar. <laughs> like it's not, it's not registering as, as news or necessarily as important or necessarily as something that has a future, right? Yeah. In terms of the official um, story. So you, I believe it's true to say that you were, um, you were initially motivated to start investigating this as you watched um, Tahrir Square unfold, the Arab Spring, 2011. Yeah. Is that right? Because because what happened there in terms of a social pivot, a social movement that kind of riveted the world was a, was a very different model from all these things we've been talking about because yeah. of this power yeah. of social media. Well, I think, you know, it was a time where we... we that we talked about Twitter revolutions and yeah. there were people who were extremely, um, uh, you know, b- bullish on the notion that all you needed, uh, in fact, the main character of the chapter I have about, um, 
about the Arab Spring, while Ghanim said, you know, all you, th- that's it. All you need for a revolution is like social media. You know that that's mm-hmm. that's the secret ingredient. Um, and I think what actually happened is it it did provide this incredible tool for getting people into the streets. Um, it did have it's it's th- that that viral quality was incredibly helpful in speeding things up. So yeah. speed and scale, you yeah. know, I don't think yeah. we can argue with yeah. speed and scale as, as a, as a, as a, as, as qualities that the internet has and that social media in particular has. And so, you know, you had a lot of disgruntlement among a certain class of people in Egypt and in, in a lot of different Arab societies, I looked specifically at Egypt and, and mm-hmm. the social media sort of allowed that match to be lit in a, in a pretty dramatic way and got people into the, into the streets. The problem as I sort of even intuited it then, you know, although I, it became clearer to me as I saw a lot of these revolutions almost uniformly lead to even more repressive situations in those countries, um, as is the case in Egypt, is that the tool that actually allows you to go out into the, if, if we're looking at these, at these communications tools as having certain capabilities, right? That, the, that a tool that allows you, that a bullhorn, which is a wonderful yeah. tool, yeah. right? Yeah. Like a, a bullhorn is very effective. But if you begin, if you start to believe that a bullhorn is the only thing that you need, and if you contort your movement so that it's all about making sure that you can hold on to the bullhorn and use the bullhorn, you're denying yourself some really important tools. And the coalition that came together in Tahrir Square was um, was incredible and new. And what they needed to do was sort of turn themselves into a real political opposition, which was going to be hard in any circumstance, um, especially because they were mostly up against the Muslim Brotherhood who had been who had yeah. spent decades sort of developing their their hierarchy and their their identity as an organization but but they but this group of 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 radicals who wanted to democratize egyptian society they they said hey this tool this bullhorn really worked well for us that's the thing and they just kept trying to use it again and again and again and didn't give themselves the opportunity to develop um you know the 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 other tools that they would need to actually become a real opposition. Yeah, something that was um, sustained and yeah. robust. Was this Mahmoud Salem mm-hmm. said that what social media gave the revolution? The aspect it seems stuck on and could never outgrow was was a spirit for destruction. Eventually, like mm-hmm. not not mm-hmm. it didn't give it the tools for the building, the, the, right. the digging in. <laughs> right. And then while Gonim, you you write became who was the avatar of the Arab Spring, became a social media reformer. Yeah. You know, something... I, I'm, I've, I've wanted to talk to somebody about this. I've, you know, for me, the Arab Spring, what's been... You know, I see that... I think that now... Um, I would say that now... And, you know, this is 2011. This is just 10, to 10 years ago. One decade. But I think in the West, at least, um, it's considered a failure. Right. It's mm-hmm. considered something that flared up, that was defeated, um, something to be pitied, <clears throat> because I also, like you, look at the long sweep of history mm-hmm. um, and what happens when, you know, what we see differently uh, in, in, in when time becomes history. I mean, you know, 
I, my suspicion is that even though it had this very different trajectory, this dramatic trajectory of scaling and then seeming to be completely deflated, that that seeds were planted, right? That that there, yeah. and I mean, I do hear this from time to time when I when I speak with people who know that region. So now it's like the quiet before has come after mm-hmm. the. <laughs> <laughs> the dramatic um, revolution that 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 would have been—it's um, yeah. always, you know, it it it's interests me so much because I, I I think a lot about how we think about the French. For, so, for example, the French Revolution, right, which right. we think of as a successful revolution, mm-hmm. and forget that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went back and looked <laughs> at the timeline just because I was going to be, you know, it was in 1789 that the Bastille gets stormed. You know, the French right. Republic is proclaimed in 1792. In 1793, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette are executed. Napoleon sides with the revolutionaries, but right. by 1804, he has crowned himself emperor. And right. Right? right, and we forget he, the whole reign of terror part. He reinstates Louis the Sixteenth's <laughs> brother as king. Um, right, when right. is that? Ninety, you know, uh, twenty-five years after what we celebrate as the French Revolution, right. we see also at this remove that something took hold that was transformative mm-hmm. um, over time. And I just, you know, my suspicion, and you could call me. Hopeful, but I think the way the way these things work is that something happened in 2011, and yes. in 30 years we're going to have a very different view of it than we do right now. Oh, I'm just curious I, what I, you think about no, that. No, I, I I agree. If only for one thing, which mm. is it brings possibility into the world. Yeah. You know, when you know people need people can't sort of strive for a reality until they can begin to imagine it, right? Yeah. Um, and to imagine it. They need to see some indication that it, you know, c- could exist, might exist, you know. And so the fact that that this level of protest, that um, that they brought Mubarak down, mm-hmm. you know, that they right. brought the president, of, did, they that, brought that Hussein happened. Mubarak down, yeah. that yeah. happened. It got and reversed, the fact that it, but it happened. Yeah. Right. And if it happened, it could happen again. Yeah. And I think that that, that formulation in people's minds, um, if it happened, it can happen again. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe this time it could be different. Maybe this time people will be more prepared. Maybe there will be, there is a quiet before that's happening now. You know, um, I mean, the, 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 the political activists in Egypt are an incredibly embattled group of people right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I end that chapter with, with a man uh, named Allah, who's, who's, who is probably the most sort of well-respected um, of, of the, of the activists. And he's, it was him talking about like the lessons of not being on social media, right. you know, that, right. that, that, that these things do come in cycles and there are lessons to be learned. And, and I think, I think that one of the lessons is, you know, you have to, you have to build a movement so that when the explosive moment happens, when the viral moment happens, mm-hmm. when, when, when you have the instant where you can have an opportunity to recruit a mass of people to your idea that you're ready for it, you know that you that you've done that hard work of mm-hmm. of of actually hammering out you know what you want and who you want to be. But also, that's human relational work, right? It's right, that what right. was that language of um, the physical, right? A culture being spinning out from a central intimate act carried out one person yeah. at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I, I really believe that's true. Mm-hmm. I I really, you know, I. 
I love this. I love that you're that you've that you've written this. That you've investigated history in this way. That you're that you are starting this conversation right in our in our mm. time of what are the conversations that we're having that that may not look like the central conversation, but will be what people look back at and say, oh, this started then, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <One hopes. laughs> you know, because I also, you know, I've felt this for a long time. To me, the civil rights movement is also exhibit A of yeah. this story you tell of, you know, what do we remember the March on Washington or Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr.? And not, uh, I mean, you can start to measure the quiet before of that in decades or in centuries, right? And, you know, Absolutely. we don't even see the 1950s and everything that happened in the 1960s. Totally. It had yeah. to do with the 1950s. It was all mm-hmm. led to it and it created that world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I think like more recently, and you do get into... Um, Black Lives Matter, Minneapolis 2020. But but I, you know, I have so one thing that's interesting to me. It's been interesting to me that more in the more recent future is like Occupy Wall Street, yeah, Black Lives Matter. You know, they didn't really get covered, right? They didn't mm-hmm. ever get taken seriously, right? By the media that you and I belong to, um, yeah. they. And yet, I believe that they are examples of what you are what you are shining a light on in history, right? And and you see that. And and actually, I mean, somewhere you said in your chapter called the names, you know, by early twenty twenty, Black Lives Matter was talked about in the past tense, if it was mm-hmm. talked about at all. And that's in yeah. terms of the 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 official narrative mm-hmm. and um, powerful media um, on every side of the political spectrum. Um, and then when um, George Floyd was murdered and in the context of, of, of the year of 2020 and that, um, you know, I mean, what I knew and I'm sure you knew is that it was very much alive, Black Lives Matter, but it didn't look yeah. like a movement that we'd been trained to see. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and there it was yeah. and it had yeah. a fullness to it and it had mm-hmm. depth to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it had objectives that people might not have been aware of until they really were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, you know, reforming the police, you know, that, that um, I think one of the things I tried to do in that chapter was take the slightly longer view of the last, you know, 10 years or mm-hmm. I mean, not, not even quite 10 years, but talk to activists who were involved in what was sort of the first wave of Black Lives Matter, which was, you know, started around uh, Trayvon Martin's um, killing uh, and through Ferguson um, and uh, really up until 2016 when, you know, a certain presidential candidate sort of sucked all the oxygen out of social media. Um, But there was, this was this kind of long moment where there was these series of, you know, horrific uh, videos uh, and moments of police brutality that that allowed the movement to kind of emerge in people's consciousness and then mm-hmm. sort of grab attention, then kind of flare flare out, then grab attention, right. then flare out, grab attention, flare out. And, you know, I started talking to, to folks actually before 2020. I'd actually written a ch- version of that chapter, you know, that I had finished at the end of 2019, um, thinking that I was writing a kind of a, a an obituary for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when I began to talk to these activists, they said, you know, no, actually, no. We, yeah. we, we learned a lot from that moment. And one yeah. of the things they learned was sort of the central lesson of 
that I learned in my book, looking mm-hmm. at the past, which is, you know, we need to be prepared for, for those, for those moments, you know, and, and to be prepared for those moments means hunkering down now mm-hmm. and that movements have a cycle. Um, and they became, you know, a lot of the, I'm not talking about sort of maybe some of the younger activists that just sort of like run out into the streets as soon as they're starting to run on the streets for it, but the people mm-hmm. who were really organizers in various communities, mm-hmm. um, they understood that they needed to get off social media. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at one group called the Dream Defenders in Miami who yeah. actually did this. They did something called a blackout mm-hmm. uh, where they just completely got off and then started talking to people in their uh, communities. Um, and one of the things that mattered to them as a group was um, defunding the police. And what they discovered when they started talking to people you know, going door to door, having conversations is that the majority of people did not want to defund the police. They yeah. were in it's their more own, complicated you know, than that. yeah, that it was yeah. more complicated that they yeah. were, they were worried about what that would mean. They didn't really understand yeah. uh, what the concept was, uh, mm-hmm. that the concept was about, you know, not blindly funding police departments in this country to the tune that they're mm-hmm. usually funded, but actually moving some of that money away mm-hmm. To, to or other, funneling some of that yeah. money into other social uh, services and, you know, maybe having a, um, you know, a social worker respond to a situation in the street as opposed to a police officer, um, that they're actually kind of very nuanced uh, yeah. and interesting proposals um, that were sort of bubbling, uh, but people didn't understand them. And, and, and the idea of getting off social media was like this keeps us from just relying on this slogan. It's hard to do nuance on social media, right? Exactly. That's what it doesn't do well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And and actually through these conversations and through um, actually, you know, much like the the petitioners in the 18, you know, 30s, you know, going around and actually uh, trying to, to, to convince people of a position or understanding where they're coming from. Those are those acts of conversation that I think made those groups a lot more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, I mean, even learning organizing tactics and learning politics and how to, you know, not necessarily, you know, if you want, if your goal is to defund the police, like that happens at the city council level, that doesn't Mm -hmm. happen on Twitter, you know? So, so you need, you need to know how to reach, um, the politicians who are actually going to make that really happen. Yeah, and also what I, my experience of what Black Lives Matter and kind of the movements for Black Lives, which is another way people talk about this kind of ecosystem of things that have been happening for years, is it's also communities of care, right? Like it's not mm-hmm. just about organizing. It's yeah, yeah. It's yeah. about new ways of being in community. That was certainly true in Minneapolis. Um, mm-hmm. This group, Black Visions, that I got to know, yeah. um, and and they 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 felt they felt completely. I mean, the Miski Noor, who's the character mm-hmm. that I, I focus on, they had an experience of having to have a number of blood transfusions after you know 2015 and just a series of because it was just draining. And so mm-hmm. the idea was what they wanted to do with their community of activists is create a movement that actually took that into account, took into account, like, how do you build something slowly? She mm-hmm. told, you know, they told me that their, their conversations existed on, on signal, you know, these encrypted apps, they didn't mm. talk to each other on Facebook because they knew they had to keep it sort of quiet and amongst Isn't themselves. This, and, this is so and, interesting, right? If yeah. you think about what you're, what you described about the Soviet Union and how, um, 
how you you like you, you like you had to be quiet in order to say anything meaningful, yeah. right? And like yeah. I'm, you know, I was in divided Berlin in the eighties, and you know, in those latter years, um, you would know about illegal copy machines in the basements of churches, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and now, in order to get something done, you have to you have to like subversively get quiet like off yeah 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 yeah. but uh but it's hard i think because it's very seductive Mm -hmm. the idea that something you say can be broadcast to you know any number of people and um you know at at the height of that sort of earlier phase of black lives matter 2000 Mm -hmm. again 2013 to 16 you know the people who in newspapers and magazines were literally making lists of the most influential activists in the movement based on their follower counts on Twitter, yeah, you know? And, right. And there were, that was so controversial inside. Yeah. And yeah. so when you, and when you do that, yeah. you know, let's say you're an organizer just sort of like on the ground mm-hmm. trying to convince, you know, trying to, to have influence in a local city council race, because you know that, um, that who this person could tip the balance, you know, on, 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 and, and, and actually make, uh, enact local laws that will affect communities of color that you care about, you know, that you're trying to advocate on the part of. And then you see that, like, the people who are getting attention are, you know, the ones right. who act, who know how to make Twitter work for them and right. and have the kind of voice that Twitter wants, you know, mm-hmm. and the, um, it's, it's an incredibly sort of, it can be a very demoralizing thing and, and, and make you think that, that that's where you need to shift your attention to. Yeah. And, you know, something else I'm thinking about is I, as I read this, you know, you you do um, also go to the events in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. Um, is that 2017? Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I want to say for me, um, a a really clear example that I feel we don't. So I don't know. This is hard to talk about. These things are hard to talk about. So you know, I think that what has happened with abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how a there has been kind of a revolutionary revision of yeah. what was um, the law of the land and understood to be in a certain way, and I kind of I actually want to talk about this not with value judgments, but with looking mm-hmm. at how the change happened. Yeah, what are the ingredients of that? Um, I I think that I watch. Um, progressives be just shocked and horrified and, you know, can't believe that this has happened. But actually, you know, everything that's in your book about how change happens that becomes deep and sustainable, you know, this patience, this working over decades, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, this attention mm -hmm. to the local, this like going door to door, this working with mechanisms of change that are very close to people's lives. Um, that's how that's happened. This is not mm-hmm. sudden. <laughs> it's yeah. been inc- an incredibly intelligent strategic organizing feat. And it, yeah. and the organizing, the, in, the strategic intelligence has not been matched on the other side mm-hmm. of the issue. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one thing to be said about that, and the reason I did that Charlottesville chapter is that, yeah. you know, when you, when you are, a, you know, reactionary, group that's considered outside of the whatever the, the norms have come to be in society like you you have to search for those quiet places that you can 
talk amongst yourself because you're not allowed space on, you know, the bigger platform, you know, is the words that we use these days. Yeah. But like, and so in a way, but in a way that has a, a, a salutary effect for them, you know, because it, it, it forces them to think in ways that I'm sort of describing here. It forces the, the coherence. It forces them to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to push their way into. And in a way, where, the patience, right? Can. Because the odds yeah. are great. Stacked exactly. Against you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, that Charlottesville chapter was basically here was this group of people who um, their ideas are so abhorrent and, you know, they, you know, they, they were pushed off of every social media and they found this one platform, you know, at this, it wasn't even built for this purpose. It was called Discord. It's like a, a gaming uh, for gamers. Um, but it gives you this, it has this important function for them, which is it gave you these very, very private uh, chat rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that communication happens in these chat rooms is it's not, you don't upvote anything or like anything. It's really just a stream of conversation. And what I saw, because I, I got access to like, you know, t- tens of thousands of, you know, chats from this one room that they were planning Charlottesville, the, mm-hmm. the, the protests that happened there. Um, they it, unite the right, as it came to be known, um, is that this gave them this, you know, be, be, they, they probably wouldn't have chosen to be, have to like hide in a hole together. Mm-hmm. Right? right. You know, they probably would have chosen yeah. to be somewhere more public and performative and where they could, you know, why, like loudly express their, um, th- their provocative points of view, um, or disgusting points of view. Uh, but because they couldn't, mm-hmm. they were forced into a, a hole together, a little hole. And inside that little hole, they were quite, smart about like how they were going to present themselves to the outside world. It gave them the space and the time and, and it kind of lowered the temperature on some of the, the, the performance that, right. you know, we see. It, happens like on it social took media. them to the forms that you have identified yeah. as what works yeah. when you're building something. Exactly. And they, you know, they were, they were, they were, they were talking very, uh, you know, I mean, sophisticated, maybe too strong a word, but they were talking about optics, you know, and like, and, you know, if we want to convince uh, a larger population in America that our ideas are not as abhorrent as they think, you know, as they think they are, um, you know, there are, there are communities that we can pick off here, you know, like, how do we do it? And, and how do we present ourselves? Literally, what do we wear? And how do we speak? And who do we keep, uh, you know, hidden in the closet? And who do we push forward? And, you know, all of these very sort of these conversations about strategy and tactics that, um, you know, and, and all this kind of snark that we associate with the way some of these groups, like, you know, well, look, look, there's publicly. snark on every side. Let's be clear yeah, there's snark. No, there's snark. There's, there's snark. snark there too. But there's also there's weirdly a lot mm-hmm. of earnestness. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's hey family. You know, like mm-hmm. people are 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 making themselves strangely vulnerable in right. a way that you would be shocked by, given you know um, you know kind of what we've come to associate with right. with that. But those particular strands of thought and 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 and, and groups. Yeah. So you know what that. So I think you know one of the one of the themes in your writing is that and and one thing that's so great about reading this is that our imaginations are very are kind of paralyzed <laughs> they're about by by 
by the world of social media, like by how we see things happen now, right? Even yeah. by a phrase like going viral or failing right. to go viral. Right. Um, uh, being followed, being liked or not. Um, um, and yet, this, you know, where we just wandered is into the fact that, uh, you know, whereas whereas in previous eras, in some places, um, things were done private uh, because because that's all you had. Mm-hmm. We now have a world where everybody is handed the micro, the megaphone, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yet, um, we have these examples of people creating the private spaces because, mm-hmm. because in fact, it ends up being how it can work. And yeah. also that it is possible to do that, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? It's, I mean, even though this story you just talked about with Charlottesville had a terrible... Right. Um, trajectory mm-hmm. and purpose um, it's a it's a story about being effective in a certain way and that yeah. tactic if you will like that mm-hmm. move mm-hmm. of finding the quiet um, in order to really you know to 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 bring back in the nuance to create something sustainable to be in the mode of creation rather than mere destruction yeah, or mere I, resistance. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We can do that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, you know, one of the things I, I don't want people to read this and think, you know, the internet is, you know, fundamentally horrible, and we need to just all go use typewriters. You know, that would be. No, no, that's not <laughs> that's, what that's, saying. Yeah. that's not what I'm saying. Um, yeah. It's not just one of these another cyber pessimist book. It's actually mm-hmm. just a plea for some self awareness Mm -hmm. about the way that we use the various tools that are available to us online. And, you know, I think to some extent we've become aware when it, when, when it comes to our personal lives, when it comes to the effect on democracy, we sort of are beginning to have a quite a, a smart, even just, you know, everybody is sort of thinking, it's not like the early years, you know, uh, yeah. of the 2010s where everyone was just excited about these new ways of connecting. And kind of giving and, ourselves over to them without, yeah, like, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And thinking about them as private companies and, yeah. you know, collecting our data and how they make their right. money and, right. and, and, and the sorts of conversations they want us to have because mm-hmm. it, it, um, uh, because that's what actually increases the stickiness and the revenue they get from ads and all of that. We've, we've, we I think we've, we have integrated that now, yeah. but I think, um, you know, what we're still somehow, you know, when it comes to movements or when it comes to, uh, when it comes to trying to, to, to put a, a new idea into the world and convince other people of that idea, we still, we still are attached to this idea of virality as yeah. like, as, as the thing that matters most. We still believe scaling that like... Scaling quickly. Yeah, if we, yeah. exactly, scaling yeah. quickly. Yeah. If we just put up a good Facebook post, you know, mm-hmm. if, we, if we get a lot of people into our group online, if our tweet goes viral, like we're starting something, something real. Yeah. And, um, and that's sort of what I'm pushing against is mm-hmm. to 
to, and that's what the Black Lives Matter activists who I got to know really, really understood mm -hmm. is that, you know, this has its function. It's one thing. It's mm -hmm. one tool in the toolbox. You know, mm -hmm. I keep returning to this notion of, of tools, you know, but I mm -hmm. think, I think that is the way we need to think about the media that we mm -hmm. use. And, um, and that, that we need to be careful about when we actually pick it up and, and, and understand that there are other tools in that toolbox and some of them might feel counterintuitive because it's not what's particularly popular at the moment, mm -hmm. but they are very effective in, um, in, 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 in this, in this process of sort of development and incubation. Yeah. And I would just, you know, I would just kind of paraphrase it that way. Like it let the context of how we use the tools be what we can know about how the world actually works, how change yeah. actually happens yeah. that is generative and sustainable. Um, and that's, and that's kind of the offering, um, you're making, um, yeah. you know, um, I, I loved reading and I can't remember, I think this is someplace else you were writing. I don't think this is from the book about, I think this is an article you wrote about, um, reading parties <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in 2020 <laughs> yeah. and 2020 silent reading parties, which you both wrote about and also took part in quarantine yes. book club, borderless book club. You yes. wrote about this Hannah Arendt reading circle, yeah, um, yeah. reading about reading the human condition, which is just such a phenomenal, uh, eternally uh, insightful book. Yeah. And you use this, you work with this image that somebody gave you who's, um, mm -hmm. who's mm -hmm. leading one of those, the reading circles. Is that mm -hmm. happening at Bard? Because they have that Hannah Arendt Center, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. And you know what I actually mention it in the book as well because you, it was so it was so yes you do that's right you come thinking. back to yeah. it and he said when you have a group of people sitting around a table talking the table is what makes them a group yeah, and if I you take that. the table away they're just individuals they're not connected but i think you yeah. asked is zoom our table yeah well in in that moment <laughs> um it certainly felt like it it mm -hmm. felt like this was the thing that was mm -hmm you know, we were losing We lost the table for a while. <laughs> we lost the table. Yeah. We definitely lost and the table. it's not quite back. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite back. Yeah. But, you know, it was interesting because I, I was sort of surprised by my, you know, reading is such a solitary act, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you, you're reading words on the page and they are uh, inspiring images inside your head. And um, in theory, there's nothing that should be social about that. Yeah. Um and maybe it's because I work at the New York Times Book Review, yeah. but like, and I have colleagues who I talk about books all day long with, but um, it just, I felt like this weird loss, you know, that, 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 and then, and then that was mirrored by the number of people I saw who the first thing they wanted to do, you know, once we sort of got our bearings talking about like April, May, 2020 was start, there was this flowering of book groups online, you know, and, um, and then this silent reading party, which was, uh, really sort of fun and weird and lovely, you know, which was people getting together for two hours and it was hundreds and hundreds of them at some point, mm -hmm. uh, each with their cameras on, just sitting for two hours and reading uh, as if you were sitting in a cafe, you yeah. know, with a, with a group of people reading. And, you know, there was a pianist sort of playing music and that was the only sound and you, um, uh, it really had, <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was, to me, it was indicative of, of a real kind of human need and, and desire. Well, and, you know, it takes me back to some of the stories you tell about these gatherings of forces over 
over years and decades in our past that 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 incubated something and yeah. and you know how we've been kind of contrasting how social you know the the internet in general and the social media in particular kind of sucks the nuance out of the room and yet there's always been in these important shifts there's there's been thinking and there's been getting quiet and there's been thinking things through and debating and imagining together and mm-hmm. i kind of you know in this this picture you were painting of people reading together i mean this is that's also it's it's a way that it started to happen even in zoom land and it yeah. kind of um buoyed me to think yeah. about it that way we're, yeah. we're not we haven't grown completely thoughtless and <laughs> no no i don't i don't think so i mean um in that you know the Aaron's image of the table mm-hmm. and you know the people sitting around the table and then the table disappearing and who are they yeah. uh, is, is really a moving one to me. And it's one that inspires sort of my search in this book in a mm-hmm. way, because uh, I wanted to understand sort of what those tables are for mm-hmm. us as, as people. You know, I'm looking at the specific context of like how change begins, but um, it seems to me that the table is, has an important role. The physical table, this mm-hmm. space that's bringing people together into conversation. Mm-hmm. And her point was once the table is gone, you know, who are we? And mm-hmm. I think she's pointing to to a medium there in a way. You mm-hmm. need a uh, an avenue through which you come together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I feel like when I started to look at letters, when I started to look at petitions and all these examples that we, expl- we talked about, um, I sort of found those those tables. The you tables know, those, were always yeah. in the story, right? Yeah, they, yeah, there's always something that is bringing people mm-hmm. together um, mm-hmm. in in that way. And um, can those can we find those tables online today? Are people doing that? Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know my objective. If there's a <laughs> if there's any advocacy in this book, it's to uh, it's to to search for them and understand their mm-hmm. importance to human development and progress. Well, but I also feel like you're pointing us back to the actual tables, right? Like yeah, that's saying, true. Let's, not, <laughs> let's, let's do both, but let's not forget that we yeah. still have tables to sit around. We still have and that actual tables. Yeah. that is an absolutely essential thing that happens um, For sure. when For things sure. take off in a For long-term sure. way. For sure. There's some place where you, you talk about how social scientists speak of the internalities of a movement. That was just yeah. a phrase that I really... I really liked that. And again, I feel like that's pointed at about what happens around tables or even like your, you know, mm-hmm. Zoom reading yeah. groups. There's in yeah. there's there's a look, there's a look internal, there's working on ourselves, there's in, there's interrogating uh, our place, our agency, um yeah. and asking yeah. questions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it might even not be related to, you know, when we talk about movements, it might not even be about the, the the cause, the proximate cause, you know, that we're yeah. all attacking, but it might be how we are together as a group, you together. know, and, yeah. um, and, and that has, you know, that's incredibly important too, you know, you know, when we talk about some of the hardships of the past, uh, you know, when you're a movement and you want to get off the ground and, you know, you can't press a button, but you have to, you know, go to a mimeograph machine and, 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 you know, and work it and then drop things off in people's mailboxes. Those also build internalities because you're building, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're building the strength of 
people who have to have to show commitment. Yeah. Um, so th- in, there's internalities in that way too. You know, where where the more time you spend on something the, the in some ways the harder it is the more you know you have to commit your yourself to it the more it has to become your identity it, it starts to actually become your identity mm-hmm. um and and you, and you get more effective activism you know um yeah, yeah one of the interesting things that i see happening in the world of activism is um is this commitment to health <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to say it right mm-hmm. like like this this joining of justice and joy mm-hmm. the, you know this notion of pleasure activism um mm-hmm. adrian marie brown um and i think partly that is really deciding to own um this dynamic we talked about a, a while ago that that when people give themselves over to um, work and service and, you know, bringing something new into the world with other human beings. Mm-hmm. It, in fact, is life-giving. Um, yeah. And part of, uh, you know, one of the hard trajectories of a lot, well, a lot of social movements, certainly the 1960s, mm-hmm. is the depletion that came, right? Yeah. After, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the yeah. cynicism that came. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and tell a story about um, barbecuing with the hijackers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't. I know, again, you're, I think, you're bringing me back to my my first book. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but I felt like. Would you just tell that story? Because I felt like that also again was getting in touch with you know this human dimension and this force of friendship. Yeah, it also yeah, is yeah. an ingredient, and it's a joyful thing to remember that that's an ingredient when we change the world. Absolutely. Uh, so you know, this is from my first book. When uh, one of the episodes I looked at was a um, in this moment where Jews were not allowed to leave the Soviet Union. You know, many of them applied to leave and were immediately rejected. Uh, and then sort of had to live these pariah existences of, you know, you'd lose your job, you might get kicked out of your apartment, people looked at you as, you know, not a good Soviet citizen. And it was in kind of endless, possibly endless limbo where you'd never know if, if ever you would get permission to leave. So um, in this context, in the early 1970s, um, a group of Jews uh, in Riga, Latvia, um, part of the Soviet Union at the time, they decided to do something... Uh, very bombastic and attention getting to kind of make the world aware of their plight, which is they decided they would, they, they, they saw that there was a plane <laughs> flying along, uh, flying, flying along the border, um, that they were that the Finnish border, that it was a small, like 15 seater plane. And they, in their group, they had a pilot and what they would do is they'd get on the plane, the plane made one stop so they would kind of disarm you know tie up the pilot leave him on the on the ground they, they wanted to like do do good by him they were even going to leave him with a bottle of vodka you know they didn't want to hurt right. anybody <laughs> uh and then take the plane and fly it uh to to sweden uh, not finland because there was an extradition oh. treaty with finland oh. and get out of the plane and announce to the world that you know they had suffered so much you know not being able to leave uh, the soviet union that they had had to take this dramatic action the soviet union can have its plane back but they just wanted to be free. So the Soviets uh, were very much onto them from the first moment. Uh, the KG, I read all the KGB <laughs> files. You know, they, yeah. they, they, they had tons of informants. They knew exactly what was happening. And at the moment where they stepped onto the tarmac, they um, arrested them. And it yeah. was, there was a very 
um, quite a dramatic trial um, that the Soviets kind of wanted to use as a show trial to make it clear that this whole kind of burgeoning movement was actually a group of, you know, what they called hooligans, you know, people who were just looking to cause mischief, hijackers, you know, not actually people with a real cause. But um, instead, you know, the the news that came out of the trial were these uh, courtroom statements that were incredibly moving from the defendants about mm-hmm. how, you know, what, the only thing they really wanted was just to live, you know, outside of this world where they felt very discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the Soviets sentenced the two leaders of the group to death hmm. um, and the other ones to very long prison terms. Uh, and the outcry from the world was so extreme that they em- ended up commuting the death sentences mm-hmm. and shortening the prison terms, which was pretty um, unprecedented uh, for the Soviets to respond in that way. So this sort of, it was a big crack in the wall, you know, when it came, comes to this movement because it made people aware of the cause. And But the story you were asking about was that in order to research this episode, I got to know all of the hmm. hijackers who were part of this. And now and they're like in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, or yeah. even, yeah, or even mm-hmm. a little bit older. Um, and uh, And I happened to be I happened to be, they most of them live in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I happened to be there when they had the 35th anniversary of the hijacking, which they get together every year with a big, the big cake with 35 <laughs> written on it and a, you know, and a barbecue. Right. And, you know, by that point I had done so much research that these were, you know, like heroes to me, you know, and, uh, they'd been largely forgotten by Israeli society and, mm-hmm. um, and so I got to hang out with them and there was something so revelatory about that experience because I just saw how this was a group of friends who had kind of, it was very clear that they could have like been, how they would have egged one another on, you know, Mm -hmm. and and sort of, you know, each one of them on their own might not have committed such an act of bravery really. And, and almost suicide because they knew at some point that the KGB was onto them and for sure they might be killed in the process. So um, they were really sort of committing uh, almost a fatal just form yeah. of, you know, trying to gain awareness for their cause. And But I just saw them as a group and I thought, oh, this dynamic, this is what made them right. actually take this step. It wasn't any one of them individually. It was the mm-hmm. fact of them in communion with one another as friends, you know, and, um, and it... it kind of made me understand their story so much differently because uh, it felt like uh, unbelievably courageous, you know, to, to have done this at all. Um, but then seeing how they interacted with one another and the sort of joy they took in being together, uh, it just, you know, it, it really changed my perception of that whole episode. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so I know we're speaking as, as this book, The Quiet Before, is just entering the world, but I, I understand that you met over Zoom with an eighth grade social studies class in New York City. <laughs> I did. Yeah. And, and they had read, I guess, the introduction. And I'm so curious to hear, um, yeah, these are, Pete, these are young humans who've grown up with media as we know it now. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I remember when I had to like teach my son how to how to address an envelope on a letter, like you know, <laughs> that he that he was like eighteen and he didn't know. So um, I'm just so curious about what their questions and observations were, and and how they how they perhaps were different from yours, and what yeah. you learned from that exchange. They were wonderful. First of all, mm-hmm. they were so so um, willing and eager to sort of understand. They they were studying social movements, so I was mm-hmm. sort of coming in to to talk to them from a place of you know this yeah. expertise gained from the book. And they you know 
the first thing that was funny was that they, it's very hard for them to imagine doing something in an analog world, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, right. yeah. um, you know, they, they, they're so, it's so part of the fabric of their reality, you know, that, um, how could a meme, you know, not be involved when, right. when you're talking about social movements, isn't that what a social movement is, right. you know, is, right. <laughs> um, but, but I have to say their, you know, their, their questions were, you know, kind of more searching than anything else. You know, they wanted to understand sort of how you recreate the thing that I'm talking about, you know, like, um, like how do you step away? Uh, It was, they were looking for prescriptions, you know, Mm -hmm. I think, which I found to be hopeful because, you know, they, um, even if it was difficult for them to sort of imagine what, what change could mean without, this particular tool they've become very familiar with, you know, that they do everything on. Um, they, they still were, they said, well, how, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you find the quiet? You know, mm. where, you know, what's, what's the, what's that process like? Mm. Um, and, you know, each kind of asking it in different ways, but um, it made me, it did make me sort of think that, you know, that they had the capacity (laughs) if they were, if they were asking the question. Mm -hmm. If, if you look around our our world now, um, where, where do you, I mean, obviously there's a, there's an inherent contradiction in this question because part of what you're doing is talking about things that can only be seen decades later. Right. Right, right, (laughs) And that's kind of the point of it. Um, but, uh, you know, what are you observing now that, that, you know, might be something that someone 30 years from now looks at and says, oh, there's a beginning. There's a quiet beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's not even so quiet, but I have to say, you know, one of the things lately that I've been aware of that I think we've all been aware of to some extent is the, the activism around climate change yeah. and particularly young people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it, you know, I find it very hopeful. You know, some of the conversations um, that I've heard recently are a real rejection of the performativeness of of not just politicians' Mm -hmm. actions, but of, you know, anybody who is on social media kind of making a big deal about something they're doing. You know, they're they're interested in, um, in getting back to, to basics and, and figuring out alternatives. Mm -hmm. And, and there is a sense that the way to do that is, um, in, in, on on much, on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, to me, that's hopeful. Um, you know, I see similar conversations happening around police reform, you know, um, particularly among, you know, the activists that I spoke to there, there's just a, you know, those are kind of two, two areas where that are demanding a lot of imagination, yeah. you know, if, yeah. if, if, if you want to rethink uh, how we're going to approach this crisis of, uh, of climate change, um, it seems to me the way that we've been doing things or the way we've imagined we can change things is not working. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so there, the, the avenues for uh, picturing what could work um, have to, you know, we have to establish those. We have to create the spaces where that can occur. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that I feel like there are, there is that young people are in some ways more um, conscious of, 
you know, at least the ones that I've heard talk about these issues, they're conscious of, of the way that something like uh, social media sort of distorts what they do. Yeah. And they, and they, and, and they, and they, they, they have the awareness to like, to push it away or at least keep it at arm's length. Yeah. And use it as a tool and yeah. but see its limitations. Yeah. Um, so I ask you a question, like, you know, just in, in light of all these things we've been discussing about, discussing, you know, what, what, which is kind of right now this week today, what makes you despair and, and where are you finding hope? Oh, give me one second. <laughs> That's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think despair is, is easier for me <laughs> to answer right away. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old, and I worry about the role that technology has in their lives um, and the way that it's that they're losing a capacity to focus and sustain attention in a way that I think is important, not just to do things like read books, which matter to me a lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> but to do really anything that is that demands hard work, um, which you know, I know that they're going to want to do. So I find myself despairing a lot mm-hmm. about, you know, what it means that their, that their brains have sort of contorted to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to, to these devices that, that they find themselves on too much because, and, and COVID has obviously yeah. exacerbated this to an extraordinary degree. Um, I, I, I find hope, though, in the knowledge that, you know, the things that bring us joy um, haven't changed <laughs> that much. Right. Um, it's still, you know, and, and in some ways we've been reminded of them in this moment. Uh, I miss my friends. You know, mm-hmm. I miss having social contact in a way that's been very hard to find over the last two years, even as like COVID has, yeah. you know, waxed and waned. You know, like we've, we, we, I felt, I've felt pretty isolated not enough tables Um, in your life not enough tables in my life I just said this morning to a friend I said I I haven't been in a bar in a long time and you know I don't know that I really need a uh, like I wouldn't think that I would need a bar but there is a particular (laughs) kind of space (laughs) that opens up when you're sitting and you're having a beer and then maybe a second beer and you're in you're it it's it's it is that table that's bringing you together and so um what brings me hope, I guess, you know, I mean, that's, that could be a despairing thought, you know, mm-hmm. I need, I need the bar. Um, but uh, I'm hopeful in that, like, I haven't lost, uh, and I don't think humanity, <laughs> if I can speak that broadly, has lost that really deep need, you know, in spite mm-hmm. of the fact that we've been deprived in all these ways. Um, and I find that hopeful because it means mm-hmm. that there are these essential qualities of life that we need. And one of them is, uh, is being with people mm-hmm. and, and that in some ways we've been given this gift, uh, I mean, at a horrible price, but we've been given this gift of being reminded of that. Yeah. And as you have reminded us with this, with this research and this writing, that those things that bring us most joy are also what help us shift the world on its axis when that's what's necessary. I think that's true. Yeah. Um, anything, anything else, anything you want to add? Um, (laughs) 
It's so hard to talk about the book at this length, you know. <laughs> you're you're one of my you're one of the first opportunities yeah, I've had. Yeah, well, I I do so much preparation. I may no, have, I may I, have, I may make it easier for you. For the you rest of you are certainly making it easier on me. I, I will tell you that many Maybe times. Maybe that's over. what I'm doing. I'm like giving you this experience, and then everything will feel like a piece of cake. <laughs> Uh, no, I think everything will feel like a real diminishment. Um, I guess, you know, the only, the only other, yeah, I mean, I don't even, it's, it's not even so, so important to, to mention, but, you know, one of the things that, that really I had in my mind as I was doing this book was to think about, you know, how do we think about the mediums that we use? And, um, you know, there used to be this strain of thought you know, through the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, you know, Mar Marshall McLuhan is associated with it, Neil Postman, um, of people looking at the way that the technology that we use, the communication that we use sort of shapes our brains, right? Yeah. And, 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 and forecloses certain sorts of ways of thinking and maybe opens up other ways of thinking. Yeah. But that, and, you know, that, it was largely dismissed as kind of technological determinism, right? That we're putting too much influence on on the, on the mediums. Um, and, you know, was replaced by thinking about like power, you know, and who controls the, right. the microphone. Right. Um, but I think there, it's really a moment where we need to sort of bring back that Mc, Marshall McLuhan, Neil Postman insight, you know, that, um, you know, another thinker was a man named Walter Ong, you know, who looked at the transition from oral to literate culture and how that mm. changed human yeah. brains yeah. Um, and affected things like memory and the way we understand ourselves in our lives, you know, that the actual medium that we were using could have that effect. Um, and I, I, I hope that one sort of side effect of what I'm doing here is to sort of make it clear that, you know, these movements and the people in the movements were sort of shaped by the communication that they were using yeah. uh, amongst themselves as much as anything else. Yeah. 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 Anyways, just a residual thought. From <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for I writing hope, this. I hope, and yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I hope I, it was an extremely enjoyable conversation for me. I hope that I, I gave I, I gave enough material to. Uh, yeah, to there's definitely enough material. That's not going to be the problem. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, thank you. I um, yeah, I love this. And I yeah, I just feel like this book is part of something that is emergent um you know it's like that new book the dawn of everything yes and yes. you yes. know adrian marie brown writing about we will not cancel us kind of which is mm -hmm. a, you know backlash mm -hmm. against cancel culture i feel like mm -hmm. there's some kind of ecosystem emerging um which has a you know around this similar a similar question or point about how do we tell the story of ourselves and where we've came from and how we got here and how change happens and and how have we been telling too limited a story yeah i think i think that's i think that's definitely true and that we're not we're not looking at the quiet before always you know yeah. um you know i, I I, I, I loved, you know there's there's a little anecdote that i have did i, I don't even know if i put it in the book but mm -hmm. um uh, there's a, um, and now I'm blanking on his first name. I'm sorry. Um, Robert Darnton, uh, who's a professor at Harvard, mm -hmm. who's looked at um, the, who's looked at the French Revolution and sort of um, what led 
what led to it. And he's a communication scholar. I mean, he's looking mm -hmm. at, at the sorts of things that I'm interested in. Yeah. But he has this wonderful book about a piece of uh, pieces of poetry that were sort of, you know, obscene poetry, mostly making fun of the king and <laughs> painting him <laughs> in embarrassing ways and um, portraying him in embarrassing ways. And, and, and Darnton in this book sort of tracks how, I can't remember exactly the methodology he used, but how this, oh, there was a police investigation, that's right. Um, how this, this, these pieces of poetry made their way from one pocket to another, um, you know, over like throughout Paris, you know, through like, like law clerks and students and priests and um, basically passing them from person to person. And, and, and he has this really interesting argument, which is, you know, we look at the French Revolution in this moment of the beheading, right? Yeah. Um, but how do we get there? Like, how do you get to a place where the king is thought of as a god to the place where he, we can think of him as enough of a mortal to, to do that? And the only way that happens is through something like this poetry, which, you know, um, and the way that it's passing from hand to hand and pocket to pocket, which is that people are beginning to sort of, their minds are slowly changing um, and thinking in less, you know, in, in less sort of exalted terms about what it means to be a monarch. And so um, I'm really interested in that moment, in the moment where that, where this, where those, that poetry gets passed hand to hand and how it changes the way people think about the situation that they're living in. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and yeah, and that's sort of, you know, that, that, that that's, I think something that we need to understand historically in, in, in many different circumstances. Yeah, and know that we also still have the capacity pa to pass things hand from hand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. If that's what's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, thank you, Gal. I'm so glad to meet you. And Thank you, Krista. I trust I, I, that we will... We will meet up in a three-dimensional world one day. Yes, me too. Over some tables, maybe. Yes, over some tables. <laughs> Let's get ourselves around a table. We'll let, we'll let you know what's what's happening with this and... Um, and I just, you know, just thank you again. I'm going to hand you back over to Zach. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Krista. Right. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.